Yes, it's number one. It's Top of the Pops. Everybody to year two of Who and Company. This is Drew. And this is Brent. It's January and we're starting our second year in a big way. Joining us this month is former Doctor Who brand manager Edward Russell. We'll discuss his time on the show and ask him about being a longtime fan himself. Then we delve into the world of music as Edward selects Top of the Pops as his choice for this month's classic show. And that's not all. Following our interview with Edward Russell, we'll catch up with last month's guest, Eric Malinsky, to get an update on his journey into the world of Doctor Who and find out what he thought about the Christmas special. But before we get started, we want to let you know that Drew and I will be attending Regeneration Who 4 in Baltimore on the weekend of March 23rd, 24th, and 25th, where none other than Peter Capaldi will be making his first convention appearance since leaving the show. And while we're there, we'll be hosting Who and Company live with a very special guest, so please find us and say hello. We'd love to meet you. Again, thank you all so much for a very fun and successful first year of Who and Company. Year two starts right after this. In our first guest of the new year worked behind the scenes of Doctor Who from 2005 until stepping down just recently. He knows a thing or two about Doctor Who music and is extremely photogenic. Edward Russell, welcome <laughs> to Who Hello. Company. What a great introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being here and joining us today. Thank you. Well, it was great to meet you back in Long Island in November. So uh, really nice to be part of this podcast, too. Well, fantastic. We've been looking forward since uh, since that interview. We really enjoyed having you on our uh, podcast, uh, that short interview. You know, we got it. It was good, and we wanted more. So uh, <laughs> thank you for joining us on this one. Um, so you recently stepped down as the brand manager for yeah. Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And so our first question is, um, what's a brand manager? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I mean... Basically, it's somebody who is responsible for the look and feel of Doctor Who, anything around Doctor Who, anything off screen. So not the main main program itself, but all the activity around it, whether it be um, marketing trailers or photos or or, or things like merchandise, like action figures, books, all that kind of stuff, everything around it. I'm responsible. Sorry, I was responsible for the look and feel of everything. And that job is done by managing all the various stakeholders, all the people, all the departments involved with the show. Uh, and that was my job. That sounds exhausting. <laughs> yep, it was. And I did that for 12 years. So, yeah, uh, very exhausting, but enormous fun. I mean, you know, what a great job for someone who is a Doctor Who fan to be to be doing. Uh, so what did a typical day hold for you? 
Well, there wasn't a typical day. It was very, very varied. I mean, you have the stuff that you do every day in a job. You you know, if you're in the office, you check your emails and you answer your, your phone and, and so on and so forth. But every day was different. Sometimes I'd be in the studio for whatever reason. Sometimes I'd be out um, and visiting licensees. Sometimes I'd be at home and reading scripts uh, and so on and so forth. But generally, a day was a mixture of all sorts of things. And that's one of the things I loved about the job. I, I only planned to do it for about a year and I ended up there for 12 years. It was so varied. Every day was different and every day was kind of exciting in its own way as well. So a really great job to have done. I'm curious, when you say at home reading scripts, are you talking about the uh, the actual scripts for the episodes themselves? Yes, I would, you know, read scripts in advance, read drafts and so on and so forth, um, but also reading scripts for everything else. So one of my responsibilities was to be across all the publishing, all the books, uh, all the audio plays, um, all the short stories, all the big finish. You know, I had to read all those big finish scripts, which, of course, are brilliant. And wow. I love big finish. I, <laughs> I love big finish. But somebody at the BBC has to have read them. And that was my job uh, eventually. Various other people did it, but I, I took it over uh, in the last couple of years. Um, because, you know, just in case something had slipped through, you have to be sure that somebody from the BBC had read them. And, and sometimes I would give notes very rarely or, or very rarely any big notes but there was a lot of a lot of reading involved so there's nothing that you've seen or heard on Doctor Who in the last 12 years that I probably haven't been across in some respect. <laughs> you've been there for 12 years so is there anything that stands out from that tenure that you're particularly proud of? Um, well the fact that the show is still popular after 12 years 13 years really since it came back is is something I feel proud of because I'd like to think I've had a hand in that. But, uh, you know, if there's one particular thing that we did that I'm I'm proud of, um, it would be the way that we showcased Murray Gold's music uh, with the Symphonic Spectacular. Um, it started as a, a small concert in Cardiff to raise money for charity. Um, and then we turn it into a bigger show at the Royal Albert Hall um, as part of the BBC Proms. And then, of course, we turn it into the Symphonic Spectacular, which took over various venues in Australia and in the UK. I am so disappointed we didn't manage to bring it to the States. It nearly happened, but that fell through. But it was a great show, you know, a great way to showcase Murray's fantastic soundtrack. And when you saw the audience come in, and they, especially if they didn't know quite what to expect, but for them to be exposed to a 90-piece orchestra playing that really emotional, energetic music and throw in all the wonderful clips from the show, have the monsters interact and so on and so forth. I felt that kind of summed up the, the joy of Doctor Who. Um, but that's a good example of saying to people, this is something I did, you know, this or something I was involved in, you know. <laughs> I didn't do that entire thing myself, but I was very, very involved in it, devising the show, helping with the script, uh, helping with the clips and so on and so forth, and, you know, very, very proud of that. So so you, um, part of your job was, uh, I guess, approving books and toys and that kind of thing too? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is, is there anything you okay that maybe you wish you hadn't? <laughs> <laughs> um, well... Not really, not as such, but a lot of the time the choice of what it was wasn't mine. We we would be um, we would be involved in the in the conversations, but sometimes deals were done by BBC Worldwide. I didn't work for BBC Worldwide. That's the commercial arm. I worked for the production team. Sometimes deal would be deals would be done, and the products that we were working on, I wasn't entirely happy with. 
for example, they they did a, a Mr. Potato Head of of Matt Smith, and I I hated that. I really oh I don't know. It didn't feel like it was a Doctor Who thing. It felt like a Mr. Potato Head thing. And it you know if you're going to merge brands, you need there to be something on both sides really. And we did do that successfully with a few things. I think the the game we did with Lego, the Mr. Men books, some of the the comics that we did as well, where they had crossovers. But I didn't like I didn't like the Mr. Potato Head thing. But you know what? A colleague who sat next to me for about the last four or five years had that on his desk, as if to annoy me every day. <laughs> and I I kind of got used to it in the end. But um, but yeah, maybe that's the one thing that I wasn't wasn't so proud of. I'm kind of curious. Um... I, I know it, uh, our friend Warren Fry would would uh, would want to know this question. There was a move from the the kind of the traditional five inch uh, action figures. They they went ahead for a short period of time and made them these little three inches, the small little ones. Uh, yeah, and they produced this whole line that just didn't match up with anybody else's toys. Did you have anything to do with that? Um, we were given the proposal. Um, I. Don't remember the exact detail, so I don't want to go into too much detail in case I, I say the wrong thing, but character options came to us with that idea, and there was a good reason for it at the time. I think it was matching in with something else, whether it was Star Trek or somebody else had was doing something at that same size, uh, and they wanted to do it as well, um, because uh, I, I believe that when people sort of brought their Doctor Who action figures into this other world, whatever it was, you know, had these giant Doctor Who characters against these tiny, I can't remember if it was Star Trek, but whatever, Star Trek uh, characters and stuff. So so the idea was that it matched everything else that was happening. But I can, I can see uh, that it hasn't been popular, but it was made for a good, you know, the, that decision was made for a good reason. Whenever you look back on things and you've made a decision, as long as you can feel that it was done for the right reasons at the time, that's the most important thing. I can't remember what those reasons are now, but I'm sure <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it was meant, you know, it, we didn't just arbitrarily decide to do it. There was a good reason at the time. Well, I mean, it sounds like you had to make a ton of decisions. Just the fact of sheer volume of information that was probably yeah. going across your desk must have been sort of mind boggling. You had a, a lot of responsibilities. <laughs> and I'm curious about maybe the rewards of some of those responsibilities. So what has being a brand manager allowed you to do? say fandom wise like who have you got a chance to meet what have you done that will that kind of sticks <laughs> with you as a as a doctor who fan oh interesting i mean yeah of course i've got to to go on set and um be part of the world of doctor who and and be involved in and and you know hearing all the secrets and being on the inside of it and sometimes making some secrets of our own and being involved is great um, but if you're asking me as a fan to stand back and what was it for me that really, you know, I can say that was a, a great thing. Of course, meeting and working with uh, all those, uh, the old companions and the old doctors, because we dealt with them from time to time, whether it was on the 50th anniversary or, or, or that sort of thing. And that was great. And, you know, some of them became friends. I mean, I would call someone like Katie Manning or Annika Wills a, a friend of mine now. Fraser Hines would be another one. Um, so, so that's great. And the thing to remember, though, is when you're when you're working, you're not really meeting them as a fan and, and sitting down having a conversation. They've kind of got expectations from you because you're you, you, you've either employed them or they, they've got certain expectations from you. So you can never be totally relaxed. You can never sort of sit there in a corner and, and say, hey, Katie, what was Joe Grant thinking when she pressed this button <laughs> or anything <laughs> like that? But but, you know, to have been part of that was great. And if I could choose just one one person or one one period 
it would have been to have worked with and hopefully become friends with Elizabeth Sladen, um, Sarah oh. Jane Smith. Oh, I mean, yeah. Liz was Liz was very different to Sarah Jane Smith, but at the same time, she was just every bit as wonderful. And to have been working with her, her brilliant mind, a brilliant actor, and also, you know, to have been friends with her, to have had a laugh with her, to have had a drink with her, all that kind of stuff. That that was wonderful, and I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity. Well, uh, now that your uh, job as a brand manager is is gone, what's next for you? Any big plans for the future? <laughs> um, well, do you know what? I've worked very hard since I left school. Um, I, I left school at 16, and I've worked ever since, and so that's over 30 years I've worked, and I'm in a really fortunate position that I don't have to work for a, for a little while at least, <laughs> um, and I've decided to take some time out. You know, this job has been... As you can imagine, it's, it's really hard work and it's really difficult to, to leave. But I saw a leaping off point and I felt this was time to take a break. And I'm kind of taking a break from working. Um, that said, ever since people have heard I've left, people keep bothering me and offering me things, which, which is great. You know, I really am in a lucky position, but I want to take time to find the right thing. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll probably do the odd freelance stuff here and there. But I'm going to take at least four, five, six months maybe before I go back to do sort of a full-time job. We'll see. I really don't know. Um, and also, you know, I'm, I'm getting married this year. So uh, I'm getting – yeah, uh, and that's a big job. <laughs> that's going to be as yeah, – it's going to be as big as the, the 50th anniversary festival that we did. <laughs> <laughs> or almost anyway. So, so that's going to take up a lot of my time as well. But, um, you know, what a great position to be in to not have to, to work for a little while at least. That's fantastic! Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank I mean, you. downtime. I is. I mean, I'm sure you're looking forward to it. Do you think you're going to be able to fill that time? Uh... <laughs> well, do you know what? It's been two weeks, and already I've I've been trying to keep myself occupied with things. <laughs> it's really, you know, when you're working and you're having to work late nights and early mornings, and it's nonstop, and you think, oh, wouldn't it be great not to work? And now I'm in that position where I'm not working. I just want to do stuff again. So. Uh, you know, I, don't be surprised if you don't hear some news from me soon. <laughs> I, I'm I'm somebody that likes to keep busy. It sounds like you have to keep up a fairly frenetic energy level just to yeah. To I mean, make it was like, it. it was it was like juggling. It was like juggling balls or juggling plates, spinning plates even nonstop for twelve years. Um, incredible. Uh, I'm I'm very busy. Well, I would say that you know maybe you could use that time to catch up with you know your Doctor Who, but I'm I, you probably have read, listened to, and and seen more <laughs> than your average fan. So. Oh, I'm sick of Doctor Who. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, know. Let's I don't talk think about Doctor Who then. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I don't think I'll ever be sick of Doctor Who. And over the years, when I've worked on it, I've heard I've heard lots of people leave, and they always say, "Oh, I'm I'm really looking forward to just being a fan." But you know what? Now it's happening to me. I know exactly what they mean. I'm going to watch the next series of Doctor Who with Jodie and um, know almost nothing about it, you know, which is great, which is really exciting. And I will always love Doctor Who, and, I, yeah, and it's great to be a fan again. Well, let's talk about your fandom. Um, okay. When did you first start watching? Who was your first Doctor? Well, the first episode, or story rather, that I really remember watching is Planet of the Spiders in uh, 1974. Um, and for years I was convinced that was the first one that I watched. So that's John Pertwee's last story. Uh, again, Elizabeth Sladen, Sarah Jane Smith was was the companion. Um, 
But a few years later, or maybe we're talking 15 years later, when I started watching older episodes, they looked really, really f- familiar. Obviously, I'd seen photos and so on and so on, so forth, but I'm pretty sure I probably watched episodes maybe as far back as The Green Death, which was the whole year before. Um, but yeah, that final John Pertwee series was my first real introduction to being a Doctor Who fan. To be watching a show and going, wow, this is great. This is this is the best best TV series ever and when it finished just being desperate for it to come back onto my TV screen Do you have a favourite Doctor or is there a person that is your Doctor? Do you know what? Everybody asks this question it's really difficult. <laughs> when I was in the job I had to be really tactful about what I was saying here because you know you don't want to offend anybody but the truth is I'm one of these people my favourite whatever is always the most recent so my favourite movie is always the one I've just seen and my favourite book is the one I've just read so it's really difficult to come up with an answer other than Peter Capaldi, who I've just, you know, was incredible as the Doctor and, and a fantastic end to his, his tenure. But if I had to choose somebody, I would go with Tom Baker because no one's going to no one's gonna feel upset by that choice. <laughs> but, but also he was, you know, he was not my first Doctor, but almost my first Doctor. And he was the one that I really truly became a fan with um you know he was he was so wonderful in the role and that coincided with with a really great period in the production as well and some fantastic stories so i i i feel quite confident that i can i can say that and uh i met tom i met tom about oh let me think it was about 2012 or the end of 2011 and he was really not very nice to me. <laughs> oh, no. um, yeah, it was, you know, that's one of those things about don't meet your heroes. And I, it was nothing personal. He just was uh, in the middle of something. And I went over and started chatting to him and telling him what a big fan I was and all that kind of stuff. And he really didn't want to be bothered, which is fair enough. <laughs> um, and then then we met again briefly when he filmed the 50th anniversary. And he was like a totally different person. So it kind of kind of eased that that difficulty from before. But uh, but yeah, Tom Baker, is that a good answer? Are you happy with that? Oh, we're, listen, we're always happy with Tom Baker. Um, <laughs> though we haven't met him personally. I haven't at least. Um, and I'm kind of curious, when you first met him, did you approach him as someone who, as, as a fan, or did you approach him as someone who was working for the BBC? Well, it's really interesting, both and neither, really. Um, he was at a signing for... Um, Elizabeth Sladen's autobiography, which was released posthumously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually introduced myself. Um, so what happened is, is after Liz died, I did a charity walk. Um, I walked on my own from our studios in Cardiff, where Liz filmed Doctor Who and Sarah Jane Adventures, all the way to Television Centre. And there's sort of something symbolic there that I was sort of walking from her one place to the other place, as it were. And I raised... Uh, money for charity. It took me a week. I rose, raised um, twenty thousand pounds, wow. which went to. The, I know I was very, very pleased with that amount, and I, and I gave it to the the hospice that looked after Liz when she was ill and 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 where she died, um, which you know as a fan was uh, felt like something I was giving back to her. Um, so Tom was at this signing for the book, and I had an opportunity to speak to him beforehand because I was you know working on the show and. And I introduced myself to him and said, oh, and I've just done this. And he, I think he was possibly just a bit confused by it all. Who's this guy telling me, you know, I've just walked 
180 miles for Elizabeth Sladen. Uh, <laughs> so that was the circumstances. So maybe he was just a bit confused by, by who this strange man was. <laughs> this strange photogenic man. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a problem. You approached him in person rather than... Uh, anyway. um, speaking of, uh, you know, introductions... Mm-hmm. As a Doctor Who fan and someone who has such a kind of a grasp on all aspects of it, if if you are – if someone's asking you, oh, what do you do? And you would kind of explain that process and they go, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I've never watched Doctor Who. After you get over your initial shock, <laughs> is there a story that you would say, well, you should really watch this? Is there like a go-to introduction story that you have? Because I'm always fascinated mm. by what people watched first what they really like, but then what they oh. choose to introduce other people to. Interesting question. Um, I would probably choose Rose, mm-hmm. um, the first Christopher Eccleston episode. I mean, it's designed to do exactly that. It was designed for an audience that hadn't seen the show before. It's a really, really good introduction, and if you enjoy it, you've got all those, uh, the, you know, the next 10 series of Doctor Who to enjoy. And if you're a really, really big fan, you can then dip back further. Because I'm, sp- I'm guessing this imaginary person I'm speaking to might might not be used to 20th century television and and its slower storytelling. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, throw somebody in with a uh, robot or spearhead from space because they may not enjoy it. But you know, something like Rose still stands up today, and it's a good way of understanding the concept of Doctor Who. Absolutely. Um, and also, you've got a really good run of episodes uh, to, to come up ahead. So, yeah, I would go with that. I, I, I haven't seen it in a while, but I watched it two, three years ago, and it's still an incredible piece of television. It really is fantastic. Very, you know, something to be proud of. What if this theoretical person comes to you afterwards and says, okay, I've watched all of Doctor Who. Uh, is there anything else? And you realize they haven't watched any of the classics. What would you recommend as far mm, as the classics yeah. are concerned? Well, I, do you know what? I think something like Spearhead from Space is a good way in because um, it kind of, again, tells the story from scratch. You can watch Spearhead from Space and uh, not know anything about Doctor Who beforehand because you've got all the characters discovering him for the first time. Maybe not the Brigadier, but he's unsure of who this person is. So so that's a good way in. Um, it's really difficult with the old black and white stuff because whilst I think that An Unearthly Child, the very first episode is an incredible piece of television, still holds up today. Um, you've got so many gaps, and I think it's it's probably not so enjoyable for somebody to be really getting into something. And, you know, I, I go back and watch those episodes one day, but I'm not sure if that's the first introduction to the classic series that they should have. So, yeah, I'd go with that 19, January 1970, Spearhead from Space. Would you approach them the same way and give them an exact date so they could go... Wow, you're really into this, wow. aren't you? Do you know what? Don't ask, don't, don't ask me the exact date. I think it's 4th no, of January, maybe? <laughs> Someone's going to look that up. I don't know. It's very early January 1970. <laughs> well, speaking of dates, especially early 70s, because that's as far back as we we can kind of watch it, whenever we have a guest on our program, we ask them to choose something that is not the end-all and be-all of their fandom. Now, for you... This goes doubly so because not only is Doctor Who a part of your fandom, but it's been such a part of your work life as well for such a long period of time. So when you're taking a break from Doctor Who, we ask you to choose a show that you wanted to talk about. 
Would you tell us what show you chose, but then also explain why you chose that particular program? Okay, so the show that I would choose is Top of the Pops. Uh, Top of the Pops is a UK uh, music television show. Um, it ran from 1964, from the 1st of January 1964, so not long after Doctor Who had started, um, up until 2006, I think it was, maybe early 2007. It was on every week of the year. Um, and uh, all those episodes, um, many of the episodes from the 60s and early 70s no longer exist, a bit like Doctor Who. But, you know, everything from about 1976 onwards is there. And it's a complete record of music uh, and bands with lots of live appearances of, of them over the years for all that time. And I love it. I still watch it. It's being repeated on, on TV at the moment, um, chronologically. And we're on 1985 at the moment. So I'm watching it all over again and loving the music, loving that music from the 80s. Um, but also loving the nostalgia and seeing stuff that I'd seen before, maybe only once. Um, I could just watch Top of the Pops all the time. I love it. I really, really enjoy it. <laughs> so when did you start watching? Um, I can't remember. Again, it probably would have always been on in the house, a bit like Doctor Who was. But my memories seem to go back to about the same sort of period as Doctor Who. It's probably more about that's when you sort of start remembering stuff. I would have been about three, four years old when I started watching Doctor Who and similarly with Top of the Pops. So, yeah, I, I would have seen it. Um, and that would have been the time of glam rock, which is a big thing in the UK. I don't think it was such a big thing in the US, but we had lots of big bands in the UK that sort of had that glam rock label. Um, and you will have heard of people like T-Rex and, uh, and David Bowie, but also there were a lot of homegrown acts as well, like Slade, uh, Gary Glitter and, and all that kind of stuff. And that, that to me was, was what it was about. It was about men with long hair in silver suits <laughs> singing, singing rock and roll songs. Do you do you remember the first act that you saw? Maybe. Um, yeah, it probably would have been one of those bands I just mentioned. Somebody like Slade or maybe T Rex. Um, uh, and you know, it was really space age. All that music. Maybe not so much the sound, but the look of it. These guys would look like not like people you would see in the street. They would they would have makeup. They would have sequins. They would have. Um, silver streaks in their hair and, and big platform boots and, and and it was just amazing and a bit like Doctor Who really um, if you think of uh, a story like Carnival of Monsters and how brightly um, you know all the, all the characters are in there like Scherner and so and so, so forth it was kind of like that and it really caught my eye so yeah one of those early bands from the glam rock era Do you think the spectacle of the program is is sort of what brought people to it? Uh, or maybe just to be able to see acts that because this is before m much much before like MTV or music videos, so this is sort of that first glance to watch performers oh, yeah. where you only get to experience audio wise to actually see yeah. them live. Absolutely. So this was uh, it was a real cultural thing in the UK. Um, the only way you heard new music obviously was on the radio or on Top of the Pops, and Top of the Pops was on every Thursday evening, um, and you had to watch it because the next day in school, that's all anybody talked about. So uh, everybody watched it. It had an enormous um, audience, um, and that's where we all discovered new music. And, of course, you'd have lots of acts you already knew, but there would be lots of new artists breaking through. So you'd see Boy George for the first time, and you'd think to yourself, well, it 
looks like a woman, but it sounds like a man. <laughs> and your your father will be watching, going, "What is that?" And your mother, your mo- your mother will be going, "Oh, I don't know. I think I think he looks quite nice." And 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 you'd be thinking, "Oh, he looks great," and 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 all that kind of stuff. And then the next day, you'd go to school. And you'd all be talking about Boy George or, or you know, whatever big act had broken through that week. And and then you'd buy the record and, and, and so on and so forth. As you say, it's kind of before MTV. It, at some point in, I think MTV hit the the States in, what, 82, 83, was it? Something and like I think that, we, yeah. I think we had it a little bit later. Um, and that's when the music video broke through as well. So... Uh, but for a period, it was the only way of discovering new music, and but also getting the added bonus of having a visual representation of it too. I think the uh, American equivalent over here would be American Bandstand. Yeah, or absolutely. So maybe Solid Gold. But uh, yeah, same thing. Uh, it would come on Saturday morning and then on Monday. That's what everybody at the school was talking about, who, who they yeah. saw that weekend. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely... Uh not a part of my my early childhood it's kind of interesting because i remember people talking about the bands that they saw over the weekend but i was i didn't have a tv growing up and i didn't really listen to the radio and so um it was fascinating to go back onto youtube because so much of it is on youtube to go back yeah. and, and watch these performances but uh <laughs> when i tried to go past 1977 there's barely anything there yeah, so uh, I think up until 76, virtually everything's missing. There's about six episodes, and there's there's quite a few clips of, of particular performances because, of course, a lot of them were sold abroad. You know, uh, perhaps Solid Gold, if it had a UK artist that it couldn't get on the show or American Bandstand, they would have bought in a clip from Top of the Pops. Um, so, so some clips exist, but the majority of, of episodes before 76, 77 don't exist. Um, a bit like Doctor Who, which is a real shame. Um, but there we go. That's that's the way things are. Who was an act that you remember seeing on Top of the Pops for the first time that just that maybe you hadn't heard on the radio, but you saw them for the first time on that show, and it just kind of really stuck with you? Interesting. I mean, it would probably be something in the early 80s. I, I'd started, you know, although I'd been watching Top of the Pops, I started buying records in about 78, 79, and then there's a sort of a thing that happened in the early 80s um, musically. And I I hit 12, I hit puberty. Um, and all these things kind of collided. So it probably would have been a band like Human League or, or maybe Duran Duran or Depeche Mode, one of those early 80s electronic bands um, uh, that I saw. And, and, you know, I can certainly remember seeing Human League and seeing Phil Oakey with um, his, his lopsided haircut and, and the two... Uh, beautiful but normal looking girls uh, you know a lot of pop stars and, and celebrities at the time looked very glamorous and they were kind of they could have been your older sister and, and hearing them sing songs that sounded like um, sounded like again like the future they were all electronic and even their voices sounded almost robotic and thinking wow this is this is something new and different and, and amazing and you know just feeling very very excited about uh, music at that time that's really neat. Um, on the other side of the coin, so you have all this appreciation for bands that come on. Is there was there an act that you saw live and then kind of I don't know lost appreciation for, or maybe just kind of lessened <laughs> your interest? Like once you saw them, you kind of went, eh, maybe they're not that great. <laughs> well, the thing with Top of the Pops is that most of the acts mimed. 
Um, and that was the thing. Uh, they mimed along to their songs occasionally, and certainly in the 70s, uh, they would have a, a band there. Um, and again, it happened in the 90s when everyone talked about real music um, and so on and so forth. But for a lot of the 70s and most of the 80s, they would mime along to their track. So generally, you got what you expected. Um, but a couple of artists decided they would be really cool and do a live performance. And I can remember a really almost embarrassing New Order doing Blue Monday, their most famous oh, track. I um, saw that. And it was so, it was so awkward. It were, was. <laughs> it, I mean, it's not terrible. It, you know, they're, they, they're in time and, and reasonably in tune. But it it's just... What what makes that song is its syncopated electronic sound and its preciseness kind of mixed in with the organic sound of the voices and the guitar, but it's just all goes on that clip and it and it's kind of cringeworthy and you can tell that they can't tell and that's the that's the embarrassing thing they you can tell they're going wow we're we're great and and they must look at it now and think yeah we shouldn't have done that we should we should have maybe mimed and I can remember watching that and thinking oh mm, gone right off these guys. And you can look at the audience, too, and they look disinterested. They're, like, talking amongst themselves, some of them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> probably. There's probably. They're probably waiting for, for Duran Duran around the corner who are, you know, about to do a nice, a nice good lip sync. <laughs> I'd like to point out, and this is embarrassing for me, but it's still really fun. I, I have been watching clips from Top of the Pops for the last couple of days. I'm really enjoying it. But it took me five or more clips to actually realize that they were lip syncing, or which is what we, uh, miming it. And it, two examples stood up. It was one, I was thinking, man, these guys sound really professional. They're on. It sounds just like the music. It didn't occur to me until I saw that they weren't singing into mics. That that should have <laughs> clued me in. Also, um, I, I'm trying to remember who it was I was watching, but they, uh, I think I wrote it down somewhere. Um yeah, so no, so there's a uh, uh, Brendan with "Gimme Some" from 1977, and there's a horn oh, section yeah. playing in the background, but there are no horns, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh, oh, gotcha. Well, uh, I can I can let you in some inside information because obviously that's that's how they would do it. They would you know lip sync and mime along to it. Um, but things like the drum set that you see, that was actually rubber drums. The cymbals were rubber so that they wouldn't be making a noise because obviously they dub, o- they dub over it with the music as well, but they wanted the crowd sound so the band themselves would be making as little noise as possible in the studio. So, um, so yeah, it, it's kind of obvious. And when I was young, I don't think I really noticed either, but you look at it now and sometimes... And there's some clips. Uh, there's a few episodes where you can see where people aren't even... Opening their mouths at the right time. <laughs> I, I found some one of those. them. Yeah, yeah. One of them I saw was somebody called uh, All About Eve. They were doing a song yes. called Martha's Harbor. Yes, and they they couldn't hear the track, but you could hear it at home. So they're yes. just sitting there. The, the singer and the guitarist are just sitting there. <laughs> while the and music's going. they they I've seen this clip many times, and they, and and it's not even like they're just sat there. They're sat there looking really bored, as if they're <laughs> you know waiting for for whoever else is in the other side of the studio to be performing. Uh, it's very funny to watch, yeah. I went in and um, once I figured out they were <clears throat> they were miming when they're doing lip syncing. I, I was like, okay, I want to see like, did anyone take advantage of this? And there's a couple of clips on YouTube are like the best miming mishaps. Uh, so you got Morrissey <laughs> singing into a, a bouquet of flowers. Um, <laughs> Nirvana came on in 1991 and. Uh, 
no, actually, Nirvana was different because they weren't lip syncing. They actually sung. Uh, yes. And he did it. He was trying to do a Morrissey impression uh, from what it sounded like, uh, which failed uh, miserably <laughs> and and probably rightly so. Uh, but very de- he was singing it very deeply. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, I got to see, you know, many, I would say 70% of the acts that, that I watched clips from. And I watched full episodes to, to kind of get a feel of what it was like from different decades. But a lot of these acts I just had, I'd never heard of, and nor nor should I, right? Because it's top of no. the pops in the UK. These are groups that aren't going to really cross the Atlantic and, and come to the States. But I did get to see one or two that I, I did recognize and really, really enjoyed. Well, it's really interesting to... As I said, it's being repeated at the moment, and to look at the musical journey and, and what happened. Um, and as I said, we're on 85 at the moment. And this is where the UK has kind of taken over the music scene for a few years. Obviously, during the 70s, you had a lot of very big US acts and, and some pretty big uh, UK ones and even some sort of international ones. But in the 80s, uh, that beginning, it was all dominated by big UK acts that went over to the US and and had massive success and now we're at 1985 and suddenly those US acts are coming over here and we're seeing more and more of them uh, becoming really big so you've got the obvious you've got the big ones like uh, Prince Michael Jackson and Madonna who obviously have always been uh, big but you're starting to see that sort of rockier sound come in that the the US was was famous for um, and I think in a few months time we'll get the episode where we have um, we are the world which of course was the the big um, charity single that was done um, for to, to help the the charity in Africa. We had the Band Aid single. Do they know it's Christmas? And you you had your <laughs> charity single, and it and it, it's really interesting to to see the difference um, because the U.S. song is just so slick and perfect and, and incredible and and expertly performed, and and the U.K. Uh, acts are slightly more, uh, slightly less professional, but there's something a bit more r- real about them as well. So, I'm really enjoying at the moment watching the difference between the the music coming from both sides of the Atlantic. It's really great. When we had you on for that short clip from Li, who you were watching the 1984 kind of retrospective in, in that time, and I think you referred to it as the the greatest year of music. <laughs> you seem to be oh, yeah. really enjoying it. Uh, so do you not enjoy 1985 as much, or is it just 1984 sort of like the peak, the pinnacle? Which, you know what? A, y- a year ago I was watching 1983, and I said that was the peak, and then I watched <laughs> 84, and it was the peak. So, you know, ask me in a few months' time, and maybe 1985 will be the peak. Um, I think, you know, you've always got a bit of fondness for that era that you grew up on, and I was 14 in 84, so that's got a lot of resonance for me. Uh, there's loads of other great eras of music and you see it all in Top of the Pops. I mean, 88 was when sort of house music came out and that was really big. In the mid-90s over in the UK, we had what we call Britpop, um, which was also really big. And, I, you know, I still listen to music today and I still love music. So, But, OK, I'm gonna, I, I, I'll be very surprised if anything's quite as good as 1984. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> it was nice to, to just kind of catch up with acts that I'd heard about and... Uh but not never seen or really listened to just because they didn't really make their way over to the, the States. But it was also nice to see bands that, that I did hear about. There was a very brief time in their early to mid nineties where I really cared about music, but I also lived in a small beach community that only played classic music or country music. 
And so wow. you, you couldn't get new stuff unless you went to, you know, I had to travel to other states to get to college towns to hear stuff that, you know, college radio was playing and the alternative scene, stuff like that. So I found a couple of Tops of the Pops where James uh, played oh, yeah. the band James, yeah. which I was yeah. was one of the few groups that I had heard of that no one else really around me knew. And it was really nice to go and see some of their, they did both um, uh, a, a mimed show, but then there did some later stuff. You could tell they were doing live performances. It was really cool. I'd never seen them live before because they just never came over. Well, there was this big period in the early 90s, certainly in the UK, where there was a lot of dance music and um, a lot of the acts um, had female singers that weren't actually the same singers that they had in the videos um, or they had samples in them or, or so on and so forth. Um, and that was a big thing at the time. But it also coincided with Top of the Pop suddenly insisted that everybody had to sing live. Oh. Um, so, <laughs> so, so you'd have this record with this big Loretta Holloway-style voice on it or Martha Wash-style vocal coming out of it. And then when they performed on Top of the Pops, that person wasn't available, so they'd have this this beautiful model who couldn't quite hit the notes. So that was kind of an interesting period. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a thing with music. There's a real snobbery about it that some people say that, you know, unless an artist writes their own songs, that they're, you know, they're not true. And you think, well, Elvis Presley never wrote a single song and no one would say that he wasn't a true artist. And there's also the thing about, you know, if they can't sing live, then they're, they're, they're not great. But, you know, to be able to sing live as well as you can on the record is a really unique skill and not everybody has got that and that that shouldn't take away from a brilliant song so you know i i look at it both ways there was some great live stuff there that i did find one was uh um a clip of david bowie doing uh gene genie that they had just found oh yeah 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 and then i saw um a smoking live version of um black sabbath doing paranoid that was excellent that's that's one of the ones from 1970, isn't it? I think it's one of the rare early ones that exists. Yeah, and um, and I also saw they did an entire special with Oasis, which was great. I was just going to watch a couple of minutes and I ended up <laughs> watching the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I did see uh, a, a, one of the Oasis clips where the brothers switched places. Um, one was on guitar and the other one was singing. Gallagher, yes. right? Aren't they the last last name is Gallagher? That's right. Yeah. So that's that's um, I think that's the clip from uh, "Don't Look Back in Anger." Maybe is that the one? Um, because actually, Noel sings that one, and I think you've got um, Liam on the piano or something, or, or maybe you, there's another clip. But you know, I guess a lot of these acts would go there and just fool about. It was very exciting to be to be a pop star, especially in the seventies and eighties, and to be on top of the pops was your ultimate aim. But some of them, maybe you know decided to have a bit of fun maybe they've been to the pub beforehand <laughs> so uh how did you get involved working on this show yeah so you know how lucky am i to have worked on two television shows uh that i loved um i worked on top of the pops um from 2000 um i worked on the on the digital side we'd call it now but it was the website back then so i worked with the team that made the website um, um but we also did all the other digital stuff like the web chats and the um, the interactive stuff, the stuff in the UK we call the red button stuff. Um, so created all that content. Um, there's a sister show to Top of the Pops, or there was at the time, called Top of the Pops 2, which was all the retro side of stuff. And I kind of did all the, the digital stuff for that. Um, I'm not on my own with a big team. Um, but that was great. Um, it meant I got to go to all the recordings and watch the show being made and, 
and be part of that and interview uh, a lot of the pop stars as well. So, you know, got to meet a lot of famous people that way too. Um, do you know what? If I was listening to your podcast now and hearing about this guy, Edward Russell, I'd be really jealous of him. <laughs> he's, he's worked on Top of the Pops, he's worked in Doctor Who, and now he doesn't even have to work at all for a little while. I mean, what a... Oh, wow. oh and he's photogenic. <laughs> no, I, I, I've been very, very fortunate, and, and to work on Top of the Pops was great, a really exciting period. Um, I worked there till two, 2005, um, when I went on to Doctor Who, and uh, sadly, just after I left Top of the Pops, it, it got cancelled, so... Uh, I hope the same doesn't happen to Doctor Who. I'm sure it won't. <laughs> <laughs> why do you think it got cancelled? Or do, why do you know it got cancelled? I, I, I don't know if there's a, um, a definitive oh answer. You know, I don't know if there is a definitive answer either. I think um, it wasn't really loved by the, the channel anymore and it got moved on to a second channel, BBC Two, which has lower ratings. Um, it just wasn't getting the attention it deserved. Um uh, and I guess it's one of those things. I know when it did cancel that the r- music industry in the UK was really upset because, um, you know, it was a big prime place for them to promote um, their shows. But you know what? It also coincided with a lot of other stuff. Um, and we're now in a situation with, with streaming where um, music's absorbed in a different way. And, and I don't know whether a show like Top of the Pops would exist in today's uh, society or in today's culture. So... I guess it was signaling the end of an era, really, at the end of people buying records or, or, or CDs or, or what have you, and, and it just wasn't sus- wasn't sustainable. And it's really interesting because back in those days, music being a music fan was all about current music, really. Not entirely, but it was all about the new stuff, and, and if you were young, it was like the cool stuff, and and not the stuff that your parents listened to. That wasn't really cool. And I think that's I think that's changed a bit now. I I was on a train the other day and um, a group of teenagers got on and they were listening to music from their, their phones, as they do. But it wasn't rap. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't some loud rap or, or rock music. They were listening to Take On Me by Aha. <laughs> <laughs> and they were they were singing along. And, that, and I found that really strange because the, idea, that the equivalent of that when I was 14 would have been somebody coming along and listening to, I don't know... Um, Elvis Presley, it just felt really, really strange. So, so yeah, music's changed and the way we absorb music changed and, you know, Top of the Pops' demise sort of raised a flag to that, really. Now, is it true that it still has a Christmas, New Year's special that it does every year? Or is that... Because I, yes. I went looking in and I found a couple of Christmas, New Year's specials. And so is that a holdover? Is it just sort of like... It's been tradition, so we're keeping that as a different group, different production. How is yeah, that it seems to be. I think it's a tradition. I, I, I mean, we're in the UK. Although we have many TV channels, like you do, there's still um, what we call the terrestrial channels. They're not anymore; they're digital. But the the sort of four or five main channels and and the programming on them has pretty much stayed the same uh, throughout the years. Particularly BBC, BBC One, which is probably the most watched channel at Christmas, and. We're a much smaller country than you, so it's quite different. But, you know, there are traditions that we stick to. And, and TV viewing is part of that. And uh, watching Top of the Pops on Christmas Day is part of that tradition. So the show still comes back every year for a one-off where they show the hits of the year. Rather than being the hits of that week, uh, they show the big hits of, of the year, um, which is great. So it, it still exists. It hasn't gone entirely. And who knows? It may come back again in, in some form. Um, I'd certainly like to see that happen. One of the things... Um I saw and I watched. I only watched because on Facebook you had listed, I think, your favorite 
five favorite acts or songs yeah. from 2017. And as yeah. I was scrolling through Top of the Pops, and this is what threw me because I thought Top of the Pops had been canceled in 2006. But And I'm going to um, get this name pronunciation wrong. But I saw uh, Dua Lipa yeah. doing yeah. Be the One. That's right. Yeah. Uh, for the New Year's from this from from just a couple of weeks ago, and I I sat down and listened to it because that was one of the I think that was the act and song that you had recommended as one of your favorites, and I I listened to it. it was really good. But the production, like the top of the pops production, seemed really up to date, and there was a <laughs> real group, and it looked like folks were getting into it, and it also looked like maybe she was performing live as opposed oh, yeah. to okay yeah, so yeah yeah she was i don't the... know what to think anymore I, I don't know trust. <laughs> you don't know what's real anymore um yeah i mean i you know i still really love pop music i think i always will and, and there's there's a lot of pop music that i still love dua lipa is one of the acts that i really like um and i think yesterday they announced the nominations for the brit awards the brit awards is our equivalent i guess of the grammys um and she's been nominated for five uh, awards which is the most uh so i feel that you know i i know what i'm talking about still maybe <laughs> um but yeah of course it's got very modern production values now and um uh it was modern production values back in the day you know it was groundbreaking back in 1978 but things have just changed now um and also i think the abilities to make people sound as good as possible when they sing live um have been improved um, in various ways. Um, people can have in-ear monitors now so they can hear their voice back, whereas when you watch some of those clips from the 1970s, they're, they're hearing their own voice from speakers out in the audience, so it's not. that's possibly why the live vocals... I'm not saying they don't sound good, but they sound live. You can really tell they're different, whereas now we can do production techniques to make things sound really great. So you're not wrong to question or not whether she's singing live, I just think that people are, are able to sound more like the record these days when they perform live. Well, since we're talking about music, uh, current music, is there um, anything recently, maybe over the last year or two, that you've heard that you'd recommend? Um, yeah, there's a couple of bands I really like. Um, I really like Haim, um, who are Three Priests, um, American uh, a band. Uh, they're really great. Mm-hmm. They've kind of got a sort of an updated fleet with Mac Sound. So they've kind of got that kind of guitar-y 70s vibe to it. But it's got a kind of product, modern production um, to it as well. Um, an artist that I've never particularly liked, but she's done some really great singles recently, is Rita Aurora. Um, uh, who else? Um, do you know what? I'm I listen to a lot of old music as well. I've recently started collecting vinyl. It's a big thing over here to to get back into vinyl, and I've been enjoying going into secondhand stores, thrift stores, and 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 buying old classics and listening to them again. So uh, that's been my big thing. So the, this morning I sat and listened listened to uh, to Queen, uh, their album The Works uh, from eighty oh, nice. four, I think, oh, yeah. one with Radio Gaga and and all that kind of stuff on it. So so I listen to a lot of music. Music's really important to me. And and do you know what? when I was working on Doctor Who? It's a real escape because you need you need that thing to take your mind off Doctor Who because as you've probably guessed from our chat it was a very intense uh, a job and, and to come home and listen to some music has been is been really important to me. What else? Anything else? Uh, Brent, what have you listened to in 2017 that you really liked? Um, I'm trying to think of some new people. Uh, uh, Alice Merton, uh, Bleachers, Manchester Orchestra. Uh, the new John Mayer is great. The new Killers album is excellent. Yeah, I love the Killers. Um, I, I, yeah, I'll tell you, radio has gotten so boring over here over the last several years that uh, 
I wanted to try something different, so I switched over on the internet, and I found, at the time it was called XFM, now it's called Radio X, and I've listened to that for a lot, and, and it's turned me on to a lot of bands I'd never heard before, uh, Nothing But Thieves, Catfish and the Bottlemen, and um, there's some great stuff over there, so yeah. it's mostly what I listen to now. Ra- radio's the same here, everything really sounds the same, and I'm conscious that I sound like my dad did in 1978 <laughs> <laughs> by saying that, but I think that production has sort of stayed the same and I think it's got a lot to do with streaming and capturing the audience especially with young people if if something sounds a bit weird they're not interested and they skip Um, and that's a real shame but the good thing about streaming is like you said and especially with radio shows like that is it gives you an opportunity to absorb lots of new music or or different music Um, so you know there there are good things about the way we consume um, audio these days as well and and it's always great to 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 find new acts Um, there's a, a great artist called Bournes, um, who's US, and he's got a real mix of that early 70s glam rock sound and the 80s sort of drum machine sound as well. That's somebody I'd, I'd uh, really recommend. He's just brought out an, an album called Blue Madonna, um, and it features a duet with Lana Del Rey. So, uh, so that's another modern piece of music I would definitely, definitely recommend. That's very cool. Um, before we let you go, one of the things that <clears throat> you had let on that you were going to be doing uh, between the time that we we had Eli Hu and had you on here was you're going to go to a concert, and I'm kind of curious how the Banana Rama concert went. Drew, I can't believe that... you! I can't believe you've told everybody about that. That was our secret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was amazing. I mean. Uh, that kind of epitomizes the music I love. I, as I, as you've probably guessed, I really love pop music. And I, I love '80s music, and, and Banana Rama sort of really uh, encapsulated everything I loved in music, really, because they were a bit, bit punky, but also quite kind of upbeat and, and pop as well. So they they were really big in the UK, and, and you know it, it, they were the biggest girl band ever at one point. Um, um, you know, I think it's only the Supremes and maybe the Spice Girls that have dared to try and take their crown from them and I think they were pretty big at certain points in the US I know Cruel Summer was a big hit over there maybe Venus as well mm-hmm. but uh, they had hit over hit after hit after hit here but they kind of they didn't split up but one of the members left Siobhan and she went off and she became Shakespeare's sister and had a few hits in in that respect and the, they carried on here firstly with another member but then as a duo but never quite had the fame they had and then um, almost a year ago, they announced that that original trio was getting back together to do a series of UK dates. And that, for me, was really exciting. So I bought tickets straight away um, and uh, went to see them in November. And they were brilliant. They were absolutely fantastic. I mean, uh, for a pop band, they had, do you know what, they had all live musicians in there. I'm sure they had some backing track in there as well without a doubt but they they sang live they had brilliant visuals you know somebody like me who's into uh television and production and so on and stuff would have really this would really appeal to but what they had got is the rushes from their original videos so not the actual videos but all the all the other material that was shot at the same time and they had that projected in the background so you had so if you imagine when you watch a pop video so the video for example for one of their songs like cruel summer um you have lots and lots of different takes and lots of different setups. And they had all of those playing in the background simultaneously. So that was great. It was a real nostalgia fest for me to be able to watch all this material for the first time. Uh, so they were great. And they're coming to the US. 
Now, the exciting thing is they are playing in the US in LA at the same time as I'm there next month. So I'm thinking, <laughs> <laughs> thinking if you're around, Drew, maybe I can persuade you to come along as well. <laughs> uh, if, if I was around, you wouldn't have to persuade me. I'd be there in a heartbeat. But uh, oh, yeah, sadly, sadly, uh, and I'm assuming we're talking about Galley here. Yeah, um, they're going to be in LA on the Tuesday after Galley. I'm currently kind of going back on the Monday, but who knows? Maybe I'll extend my stay and, and, and go and see them. I think I'm going to try for a 2019 galley because I've never been and I hear it's wonderful and I would love to take part in that kind of group and I'd love to hang out with you because ah. I, I've had a blast hanging out with you today. Um, before <laughs> we let you go, you know, you've, you've taken this break, you've, you've, you've got a lot of free time in your hands, but if, you, if people want to get in touch with you and you want those people to get in touch with you, how can they reach you via the internet? I'm on Twitter. Um, I've kind of taken a step off the brakes, off the gas rather, with Twitter recently because I tweeted a lot when I was doing Doctor Who and, and I kind of like need to take a bit of time away from that world slightly. Not massively, but just to sort of have a breather. But I am on Twitter, so you can find me there, at Edward Russell, R-U-S-S-E-L-L. That's the best way to find me. But I'm also on the other networks like uh, Instagram and, and so on and so forth. So I'd love to hear from people. You mentioned I'll be at uh, a Galley in February. I'm so looking forward to that. Um, all those Doctor Who fans and having an opportunity to connect with them, but also to be there with my, my friends and colleagues, people like um, Stephen Moffat and Murray Gold and, and all those people from the classic era as well. It's going to be great. So you can't avoid me. I may not be uh, brand manager of Doctor Who anymore, but uh, I'm, I'm still around. So if people want to get in touch there, they're more than welcome to. That's fantastic. Well, thank you for, for spending time with us. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Once again, a very special thank you to the wonderful Edward Russell for hanging out with us this month. But that's not all that we have for you. Back in December, we interviewed podcaster Eric Malinsky, who went from someone who had only heard of Doctor Who to someone who now loves it, and only in a matter of a couple of months. His podcast, Imaginary Worlds, just dropped its latest episode, which is about, well, you guessed it, Doctor Who. We promised you that we'd check in with Eric from time to time to get his perspective, so a few weeks ago we sat down to chat about Twice Upon a Time. So to close out our show, we'll leave you with that interview. Taking, I, I'm guessing that you watched the uh, Christmas special. I was waiting for the last two episodes of season 10 to arrive because I was getting them on Netflix discs, which, by the way, n now they're streaming on Amazon. Thank you very much. Right. They, right. they weren't at the time. So I, I was really hoping to have seen the last two episodes before the Christmas special, and uh, I didn't because uh, we went off to California for the holidays. So I came back, and I was like, was like sitting there on my DVR, and I was just avoiding – I was avoiding Twitter – any kind of spoilers about it. So I quickly watched those two episodes, which I loved. And then I think I was a little, I need to take a break. And then the next day I finally watched the Christmas, the uh, Christmas episode. That's cool. What'd you think? Oh, I loved it. I mean, I mean, I agree with some people who say that it, it you know, 
it didn't really have much of a plot and certainly not much of a conflict to it. Um, sure. But I wasn't terribly bothered by that because I don't think anyone was expecting that particularly. But it is interesting when you think about like Eccleston and Tennant and Smith's final episodes. It was this ginormous saving the world kind of thing. And if you look at them as a three-part episode, I felt like there was something that was kind of unique. Uh, it was really sort of um, apropos for Peter Capaldi. You know, there's sort of a sense of futility that he feels very often and, and his own sense of mortality in a weird way, even though he's can keep aging as long as he or keep regenerating as long as he wants to, if he wants to. Um, and I kind of enjoyed that. But the, just the, the general sense of him not feeling like the swashbuckling, I can save the world kind of guy um, mm-hmm. and and adding to his questioning of like, what am I doing here? And, you know, what do I stand for? And um, so that that part, I thought, worked pretty well for me. I think the whole thing with the master and Missy made no sense whatsoever. <laughs> like, I don't I mean, I don't understand why. Why is the master and Missy? Why are they always so fond of the Cybermen anyway? Like, why? I just don't understand. And the master's been, he was sitting there in that ship waiting for two years. Like, it just makes no sense at all. And as usual, I have no idea what anyone's evil plans are supposed to be. I mean, it's just utterly confusing or why they killed each other. It's, I, I just feel like the whole Peter Capaldi era is, I feel like it's never, the episodes are very rarely the sum of their parts, even though the parts are often fantastic. They have these incredible moments, incredible character moments. I mean, amazing performances, but I just always feel in the end like the story was never the sum of its parts. Um, And so I kind of felt that way about these three episodes, even though I felt like the parts themselves were fantastic uh, in terms of just the moments between Bill and between the Doctor and Missy and the Doctor and the uh, first Doctor. And I mean, there's just so many fantastic moments. Um, So I enjoyed it all, but I'm I'm really looking forward to a, a new showrunner. I am too. I, and part of it is just, it's not that I'm fed up with Moffat. It's just there's a certain amount of change. And if you think about it, we've had Moffat as our showrunner since 2010. That's seven years of Doctor Who. There are television shows that don't run seven years. So to have one person running it, it, it almost feels like it was its own separate show. You know, the Moffat area exists as its own versus Davies had it for four. And we'll yeah. see how Chibnall, long how Chibnall has it. And it's funny because the Moffat era, I liked the Amy Rory mini era, and I loved the season with Bill. It's just the Clara seasons in the middle that I feel like were so problematic, you know, and that's that's sort of too bad that we had um, a very problematic character who people I well I joked as well that she felt more like she was put together by a, by a committee. Um, and, and was like three, actually three different characters within one run. Um, there was so much, I feel like the, the show itself was struggling with her so much. And, and it was, there was just, it was such a rocky period that it's too bad because I feel like the bookends were so good. I mean, this last season with Bill was so good. I mean, it's just a shame we only got one season with her. Yeah. Oh, Bill was, is one of my favorite aspects of this last season, which I liked this season with Capaldi. I don't know what it is, and one of the discussions I've had with folks about the Christmas special, which is kind of interesting. It's you know it's been two weeks since it's been out, and I've talked to almost no one about it for two weeks. Oh, really? And then today I've had a several conversations with different folks for one reason or the other. Uh, and it's nice to hear other people's point of view because sometimes 
I, and I, I've purposely not listened to podcasts that reviewed it. I haven't read any reviews online. Uh, one of the things I've done with this last season with, uh, with Series 10 is I have tried to only watch it once and try to stay away from reviews so I could formulate... I feel like I could formulate my own opinions because I get too many voices because I listen to so many podcasts and listening to so many different conflicting voices or only listening to the folks who agree with me or only listening to the folks who disagree with me doesn't work out and I kind of wanted to let it stew in my own juices and I watched it again the other night and I, I enjoyed it fine. I found the the Cybermen aspect of the story a bit problematic. I, I thought the overall plot for the last two episodes was uh, very similar to the final story plot with Clara. Uh, I, I think everyone on that spaceship is absolutely doomed because it forgets towards the end that the Cybermen at the very bottom of the ship are still evolving super rapidly and that any second now, a new army of completely mutated, super-evolved Cybermen who failed the first time are going to succeed this time and probably just going to wipe them out and no amount of tapping a keyboard is going to help them. Yeah, there, I mean, I found some stuff a bit problematic with, with this season, and I but I liked the Christmas special. Be, and even if there wasn't a, <clears throat> a confrontation or a conflict, I thought it was very nice. It was pleasant. I enjoyed the idea of bringing the first Doctor back. I enjoyed... Uh, a number of aspects of it. I like a good multi-doctor story. It's always fun to watch oh, the doctors I love interact yeah. with one another. Yeah. Had you watched the um, An Adventure in Space and Time? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I just, you know, because if you hadn't and you weren't familiar with Bradley's first doctor, because you haven't watched much of the William Hartnell first doctor stuff, have you? I have. I mean, I've gone on BritBox and watched some of it. I mean, to me, it's it's like watching, you know, historic material. It's so. I mean, it's it's interesting to watch from an intellectual, cultural historian history perspective. But it's it's hard to watch. I feel like it's hard to watch any of the classic Who, frankly. And there are moments I get caught up in it, but but it's the pacing is so not for modern television. Um, and the, that it's it's just. I mean, and like I think I said this last time. I mean, I know people who have. They've gone back and watched the whole series and loved it. I must be. It's a limit of my imagination that I can really put myself in into. You know, it's 1966 and I'm or 64 and I'm watching this thing as if, you know, this is a nor- this is normal television. Right, right. I when I do go back and watch classic Who, I try to watch no more than one episode a day so I can pace it over over you know like a six part story. will take a whole week for me to watch. And then I don't feel like I'm I'm slogging through it quite as much. Uh, but it is fascinating to see David Bradley play William Hartnell and then play the first Doctor. That was really interesting, you know, mm-hmm. because in Adventure Time and Space, I mean, when he is or Space and Time, uh, when he is playing the Doctor in that series, uh, I'm sorry, in that movie, um, you know, he's playing as the he's playing this character as being witnessed by other actors and and directors and writers on the set i mean to 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 have him be the first doctor and suddenly and imagine he has the personal history of the first doctor uh just it was really that that itself was really wonderful and and this one of those moments where acting to me just feels like a magic trick you know right i'm just like right. how do you do that yeah i i thought he did a great job um, what did you think about the portrayal of the first doctor as being, let's say behind the times culturally? Oh, were people, uh, were some people upset about that? I'm sure. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm not saying necessarily, f- if I'm sure fans were probably, 
uh, annoyed because I, I don't re- recall the first doctor being quite so. Um, no, I'm sure he wasn't. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's definitely one of those retroactive madmen, you know, kind of, uh, way of let's look at the past through the lens of the present, uh, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I thought it was fine. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think it takes away from, from William Hartnell's doctor at all. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I mean, I guess you could say, uh, you could make the argument, oh, if you didn't watch the original show, you just think he's this sexist, racist old man. But, um, you know, I think people understand that this is, you know, this is not like, you know, they're not they're not commenting. I mean, it's one of those things where I think people would be I could I mean, again, I'm only imagining I can imagine somebody saying like, well, I understand this, but I'm not sure if other people understand this kind of thing. <laughs> right. Um so I don't know. I thought it was I thought it was really fun, um, and I and I like the way that the twelfth um, Doctor was both calling the first Doctor on his kind of on on this kind of stuff, and no, oh, you can't say that anymore. And then Bill will call the thirteenth, I mean the twelfth Doctor, on it as well, saying like, "Hey, stop mansplaining to me." Like, "Hey, you know, you're not that different from the guy over there," um, you know, and why. You know, and I know that Stephen Moffat had said, like, he's he knows that that these 13th Doctor is going to be a woman. And he really wanted to sort of lay out, well, why would the 12th Doctor even think subconsciously that, you know, maybe it's time to change genders and that this might be, you know, this was a way to set that up. So, you know, as a, you know, for story, the way it was set up as a story, I thought was was really nice. And I want to get to Jodie Whittaker's um, appearance here in just a moment. But I'm kind of curious. Do you think that this is a, a fitting final episode for Capaldi? Yeah, that's why I was saying, I mean, it's one of the things I, it's it's funny, you know, I'm putting together my Doctor Who episodes now and uh, for my podcast and I'm using, you know, a ton of clips and it's always interesting when I listen to the clips outside of the visuals, I always sort of get a new feeling for the actor. Um, Like I didn't realize how much David Tennant is doing visually with his face uh, because so often if you hear the dialogue, you're hearing one emotion and, and I'm like, God, I remember him being that angry in that scene. And then I'll watch the scene again and just realize, oh no, there's so much more going on in his face emotionally than anger, but anger is the only thing coming out of his mouth. That's a really interesting layer of performance, you know? So it's, it's interesting, certain things like that. Matt Smith is, <laughs> he's kind of, he sounds like he talks. I mean, there's he, there's not a lot of layers going on there. Um, but God, Capaldi, man, it is like listening to Shakespeare. Like some, I, I think I appreciate Capaldi more listening to his clips out of context. It's even better than watching it in the midst of you try, of them trying to move the plot along. He's just, you know, they often give him speeches that are just these standalone speeches, um, which people remember as being some of the best parts of the series. But again, they don't quite always, like I said, the episodes, I feel like they're often not some of their parts. But so I feel like he got some wonderful speeches in this. And and again, the thing I liked about his run was all, all of his questioning. You know, this is like the most, even though he's angry and grumpy a lot of the time and cynical in a way that a lot of the other modern doctors haven't been he's also so much more vulnerable in terms of his role as the doctor you know the other doctors could be emotionally vulnerable if they're upset they've lost a companion but he's very vulnerable from the start in terms of what am i doing you know what is the point of all this and and that i think is to me the most interesting part of capaldi and i feel like by having this episode not a big swashbuckling i'm going to save the universe kind of episode he gets the kind of self-referential meta episode uh i thought was really kind of appropriate 
what do you think about the same episode as the swan song for Stephen Moffat? Uh, it's fine. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think, I think Bill is probably his best character in a way that he's created, uh, throughout the whole run. So, uh, it's wonderful seeing her is a little too bad to realize it wasn't really her. Um, even though she of course is like, I'm Bill, I'm really Bill. It's like, not exactly. Um, I don't know. Do you, I thought it was fun. Do you but don't he, believe that we are the sum of our memories? It's a different the, bill in the same way that, you know, it was a different 10th doctor who ended up on the beach with Rose, you know? Sure. Um, it's a different, when you go to an alternate universe, it's not, you know, it's it, Rose's father, you know, is not Rose's father exactly in the alternate universe either. Um, so it is and it isn't bill. Um, I would have liked to have, to have seen the bill that went off with, um, I forget the watery woman, what her name Heather. was, her watery girlfriend. That's the bill I was really curious about, you know. Do you, do you know why, just jumping here, a little inside baseball, do you know why her name is Heather? No. Heather was William Hartnell's wife, so it's Bill and Heather. Uh, oh, you're just a, a, just kidding. A, no, it's just not a, a little nod. I, I was, mean, that's the, that's the assumption. I don't think I've ever heard Moffat come out and say it, but. I was always wondering his, why she was called Bill. Yeah, yeah. Well, she never. We never find out that Bill is short for anything. It, yeah, no one it, asks. Yeah, I thought it would be Bill short for Billy, like Billy Piper or something. Yeah, um, it's Bill and Bill and Heather. That's lovely, isn't it? And again, it goes to what you said on our December episode, where that Moffat very much is writing a show about Doctor Who, so much as writing yeah. Doctor Who, in that there's so much care to the for the history of the program. Mm-hmm that sometimes the narrative the emotional content of the narrative is stunted because it's so referential yeah and i feel like um the show my feeling is the show can't really it's it's growth is stunted as well when you're so tied to the past i feel like it's hard to really push and reinvent the show when you're so in love with its own past in the way that russell davies I mean, you know, the 2005, when it shows up, it's a radical departure. I mean, he's just changing things left and right. I mean, even the whole backstory of the time of, of the doctor committing double genocide against the Time Lords and the Daleks. I mean, that is a huge creative decision to make. It you really know? is. Um, and I feel like Moffat would never do something like that, except the closest thing he does to it is 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 reverse it <laughs> and, well, and and be like, let's let's go back to the way it was <laughs> um, in terms of, you know, there's there's something very conservative in a way, I think, about a Moffat's approach. Now, there's anything wrong with it, but I feel like the, I feel like Doctor Who became a bit of a nostalgia show under him. And I think that what's great about the show is that it does need to keep changing and evolving and change as Doctor Who is all about how difficult change can be and, you know, scary change can be. And so I'm not so sure whether Moffat really was able to embrace the change that the show needs to keep growing. But on this, that being said, he did pave the way for there to be a female doctor. Yeah. And and which is what we have now. So what do you think about the regeneration scene, both as the last moments for Capaldi and the first moments for Jodie Whittaker as the new doctor? And I know that... There's very little to work with as far as minute 30 seconds that we have with her, but... 
Yeah, and it's funny going back and watching the old all the all the story all the different seasons, knowing what a huge deal it was when they introduced a new doctor. It amazed me sometimes how little we saw of them. You know that like I'm like Jesus. All people saw of David Tennant was him going Barcelona, and then they had to wait a year to figure out. Like apparently, some of the press was like, "Who's this douchebag? <laughs> like, is the new doctor?" Like, and then they were like, "Wait, just wait. He's a really great character." I mean, um. Capaldi too. I mean, just the sort of how do you fly this thing? I mean, that's a lousy introduction to his character. So kidneys, I, yeah, kidneys, exactly. So I was. None of them are really quite. I feel like none of the introductions of the new doctors are entirely accurate representations of who they're going to become. So uh, I wasn't. I didn't have very high hopes for it, uh, and I. I just was. I floored. I loved it. It was, and suddenly the show became so much more cinematic too in that moment. I mean, it was just like it suddenly felt like a, a breath of fresh air, even though it's still Murray Gold's music. And there's still, you know, um, what's her name who directed the episode? She's, Rachel Talloway. Rachel Talloway. Yeah, she's she's awesome. Um, she really is. Yeah. American. Yeah. And so, uh, oh, man, that moment. I, I just wish with her Yorkshire accent, it wasn't so difficult as to understand. Ah, brilliant. I had to go online. I, I watched it three times and I'm like, what did she say? And I had to go online to, you know, this is now a day after it had aired to be like, oh, she said brilliant. That was a little too bad that it was hard to understand her as an American. Um, but, uh, oh, so beautiful. I just was like, I've watched it many times since on YouTube. And, you know, Capaldi's speech was fantastic, although I haven't had the desire to watch it again, but I loved it. Do you feel that the speech that Capaldi is giving, because technically he is he is saying the words that his next incarnation will remember, so mm-hmm. he is... Yeah. Giving a note to himself, but if we're going to take it in the, the idea that is a different, someone different, mm-hmm. do you feel that that was heavy-handed at all in the sense that it is also doing double duty as a speech sort of to the fans and the, the viewers in that it is a goodbye from the production company and the showrunner and the actor in the same way that Matt Smith did it? No, I feel or like... That, Matt, or that even David Tennant did it, right? See, like, David there's... Tennant, I was going to say to me, is more of a Russell Davies goodbye. It's like a ginormous triple bow, you know? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I mean, I love that sequence where David Tennant's character goes and sees everybody. And then Matt Smith reveals later on the Sarah Jane Adventures that, in fact, he went and saw every companion in the history of the show. <laughs> you know, when he meets Joe Grant. Um, and, uh, but... You know, it, it that definitely felt like, you know, sort of, and this is the end, folks, for me, Russell T. Davies. And I definitely felt the same with Moffat. But I'm like, you know, he earned it. My feeling is he he absolutely earned that moment. And it, and again, it's so in, in character of Capaldi to still <laughs> just kind of lecture. I mean, he doesn't know his his next incarnation will be a woman. So I, I don't I didn't see it as mansplaining to her. I just saw him as. Whoever he is, I think my guess is he was probably imagining a younger man or something. And just, you know, it's just so in his character. And I thought it was what was so cool was for him to give this long, beautiful, but pompous lecture. And then for her to look at herself, you know, first female doctor and just say, ah, brilliant. (laughs) Like, I just (laughs) felt like, like this. (laughs) And that's it. That's the only thing she says. As opposed to Matt Smith, who has a long you know, comic spiel that he does when he be, you know, and when he becomes himself. Um, so I, that contrast I thought to me was actually made it really enjoyable. In, in the long run, you didn't hate it. Uh, you loved oh, it. No. And that's important, right? Because 
we've got a whole new era of Doctor Who ahead of us, and we can still, whatever faults you might find with Moffat's era and whatever faults you might find with any of the stories, whatever, I think it ended well. I think it ended well, and Moffat's run, I think, is going to be remembered... Well, I can't. you can't forget Moffat's run, because unless they go back and do sort of what Moffat did to Davies and change a bunch of the stuff... Moffat's fingerprints are going to be all over Doctor Who from from here until eternity. I feel like I could imagine a new Doctor Who starting up without mentioning anything except uh, Gallifrey from you know from the run of, of of Moffat. We'll see. I mean, we'll see how much Chris Chibnall is interested in tying it into the past and and how much he's interested in bringing characters back. We'll see. Uh, yeah, you could start Chibnall's run in the same way that Davies started Eccleston's run and not refer yeah. to any of that. And it would be fine. It would work. But eventually, because the people who are running Doctor Who now, you know, Davies and Moffat and Chibnall, they're all fans and they watched it when they were kids. And when the folks who are watching it as kids now get older, they're going to want to reference this time that they remember. So, you know, we right. you know, we got an Alpha Centauri for for a brief moment, the end of Empress of Mars. And that is a direct reference to the Peladon stories from, you know, the Pertwee years. Would we have gotten that any other way if they hadn't been fans as kids? Probably not. So one day that we're going to get maybe uh, Rusty the Good Dalek will show up 50 years down the road or something along those lines. I mean, yeah. And, but that's a part of the charm of the show. It's been going on for so long and it's it changes so much that it inspires people to tell stories that, that reference the, its history because it has a history. You know, a lot of shows, very few shows can do that because they last for so long. They're They're kind of snuffed out so quickly in the grand scheme of television. It's a show that's been on for 54 years. Did you have a favorite part from the Christmas special? Like, was, there a, was there a favorite moment aside from maybe the final speech? Oh, God. No, it would, the speech it wouldn't be. It would be definitely Jodie Whittaker saying, oh, brilliant. Okay. Um, even though I had to look it up to understand what she said. <laughs> Other than that, I am I am a sucker for the uh, for <laughs> for characters coming to realize things that the audience already knows. And, and I, I don't know why I love that. Like when um, the brigadier's grandfather when the mo- that that and this was this was already in the cl- the trail or the trailer the sort of the world war one and you know and he says yes but one because oh right spoilers or when the first doctor realizes you know that you know you're me and he said i thought i was gonna get younger and he's like i am younger i don't know there's just certain <laughs> there's certain moments like that that i find i find incredibly satisfying even when uh we find out that bill is not really bill but then we wait for the first doctor to realize it those are the moments that I, I, I feel like, I don't know why, but I, I feel like, particularly on a show like this, which is so much about discovery, um, I find those moments really satisfying. I feel like somebody could have come up with a much better answer than that, but that's what popped into my head. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's uh, it's my pleasure. I've I've uh, Now I just talk about Doctor Who all the time. <laughs> but the problem is a lot of people don't. It's such a cult show in the U.S. that people are either just like, uh, yes, I will talk with you about Doctor Who anywhere, anytime, or they're just like, yeah, did I mention I've never watched the show? <laughs> well, we have, we love it, and you are always welcome to come and join us to talk about it. Cool. Awesome. In my uh, Doctor Who episodes... 
the three episodes I'm putting out. First one's going to be out on the 31st. No, on the 24th. 24th. Well, we'll make sure we link to that on our, our website. Thank you so much. Sure. Thanks for joining us at Who & Company. Special shout-out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. Who & Company can be found on iheartradio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany. Support the show on patreon.com slash whoandcompany. Or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month.